As someone who loves history, it's a particular pleasure for me to welcome Dr. McCullough today. It's been said that we read history not simply to know what happened, but who we are. David McCullough, one of our country's best-known and most celebrated biographers and narrative historians, has helped, helped us as Americans know who we are. He's done this by telling stories of our past, engaging, insightful stories, stories that people actually enjoy reading, and that remind us that the past could have been otherwise, that history depends on choices made by real people, as do our own lives. Mr. McCullough was born in 1933 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and educated there and then at Yale, where he graduated with honors in English literature. He's the author of such books as Truman, John Adams, and 1776, and he's twice received the Pulitzer Prize. He has also twice received, been a winner of the Francis Parkman, Parkman Prize and has received the National Book Foundation Distinguished Contributions for American Letters Award, the National Humanities Medal, the St. Louis Literary Award, the Carl Sandburg Award, and the New York Public Library Literary Lion Award. He's, as well, he's also received an Emmy for his work in public television and is twice winner of the National Book Award for History and for Biography. In addition, Mr. McCullough is past president of the Society of American Historians and has been elected to the Academy of American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's received 31 honorary doctor's degrees and counting. A gifted speaker, Mr. McCullough has lectured in all parts of the country and abroad, as well as in the White House. In fact, he's one of the few private citizens who's been invited to speak before a joint session of, conference, of Congress, an avid reader, traveler, and a landscape painter. He lives in Massachusetts with his wife, Rosalie uh, Barnes McCullough. They have five children and 17 grandchildren. We are just so grateful to, to hear today from David McCullough, a man who has helped a whole generation rediscover the pleasure of history. Let's now give a warm welcome to Mr. McCullough at, at Brigham Young University. Thank you, Vice President Tanner, and ladies and gentlemen. I am thrilled to be part of this program. I am thrilled to be in Provo to see your beautiful university, thrilled to be at a university where an American Heritage course is part of the required curriculum and where the Constitution is being taught as a matter of serious consequence for all of us who are citizens of this great country. I am also, as a Yale graduate, thrilled to see that big Y up on your mountain. <laughs> it was extremely thoughtful of you. <laughs> I just wish that my editor-in-chief were here, Rosalie, my wife, uh, who is also a mission control in our family, and um, Secretary of the Treasury. <laughs> and chair of the Ethics Committee. 
When uh, John Adams uh, received the uh, Pulitzer Prize, we got the word on April 8th, which is Rosalie's birthday, and everybody in the family felt that was entirely appropriate. She's my, um, she's my North Star. She's the star I steer by, and, and um, I'm very proud of her. I wonder if you know what it's like, have any idea what it's like to hear that you've won the Pulitzer Prize. It's not like one of those scenes in the commercials for Publishers Clearinghouse. Um, <laughs> what happens is that the phone rings and it's a reporter and the reporter asks you if you are who you are and you affirm that you are and then the reporter asks if you're aware that you've just won the Pulitzer Prize and you say you're not aware of that and then the reporter asks you how you feel. <laughs> And, of course, you have no idea how you feel because you're trying to catch your breath and wonder which one of your f friends with a macabre sense of humor is <laughs> pulling one on you. <laughs> but the call came from uh, uh, Hillel Itali, who writes for the AP, and I, no sooner did I hang up than the phone rang again, and it was Bob Hoover from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which, with many of the same questions, Pittsburgh is my hometown. Then David Mahegan called from the Boston Globe, and a call came in from National Public Radio and another one for you from USA Today. And by this time, I suppose it was on CNN or somewhere, and so friends and family started calling, and the phone just kept ringing and ringing all afternoon, beginning at about 3.10. And, um, and because it was Rosalie's birthday, our two daughters were there and some of their children and neighbors came by and it was very festive and it wasn't until about um, eight quarter of eight that the house became still there were no more phone calls and we settled down for a nice quiet family dinner until about eight ten, when the phone rang again and Rosalie got up to answer it and we heard her say yes yes that's right well I'm not sure uh, just hold the line a minute please and she covered up the phone with her hand and she said it's Christine Maxwell from the Christian Science Monitor are you willing to speak with her and I said sure so I got up and went into the living room and picked up the other phone and said hello and she said, Mr. McCullough, I said, yes. She said, this is Christine Maxwell from the Christian Science Monitor. I said, yes. She said, I was wondering if you're aware of our special 23-week trial subscription for just 19. One of my sons said that that was a lesson in physics. The balloon goes up and the balloon comes down. <laughs> One of the hardest and I think the most important realities of history to convey to students or to readers of books or viewers of documentaries on television is that nothing ever had to happen the way it happened that any great event past could have gone off in any number of different directions for any number of different reasons, and we should understand that. It was never on a track. It was never preordained that this would follow this would follow that. Now, we're taught it that way very often, and if it begins early enough and it goes, it's that 
way of teaching history is sustained through all of our education, we begin to think that it had to have happened that way, that there had to have been a revolutionary war, that there had to have been a declaration of independence, that there had to have been a constitution. But never was that so. Chance plays a part again and again. Character counts over and over. Personality is often the determining factor in how things turned out the way they did. Furthermore, if you stop to think about it, Nobody ever lived in the past. Jefferson, Adams, George Washington, they didn't walk around saying, isn't, isn't this fascinating, living in the past? <laughs> yeah. Aren't we picturesque in our funny clothes? Uh, they were living in the present, just as we do. The great difference is that it was their present, not ours. And just as we don't know how things are going to turn out, they don't either. And one of the clearest of all lessons of history, it seems to me, is that there's no such thing as the foreseeable future. But we can know about the years that preceded us. We can know about the people who preceded us. And I have to say, if we love our country, or to be broader about that, let's say if we love the freedoms that we enjoy, the blessings of freedom, the blessings of a society that welcomes free speech, freedom of religion, and most important of all, freedom to think for ourselves. If we like that blessing, then surely we ought to know how it came to be. Who was responsible? What did they do? How much did they, did they contribute? How much did they suffer? Abigail Adams, writing in one of her many letters to her husband, John, who was off in Philadelphia, working to put the Declaration of Independence through the Congress, wrote, Posterity who, to, who are to reap the blessings will scarcely be able to conceive the hardships and sufferings of their ancestors. And alas, she is, was right. We do not conceive what they went through. We tend to see them, not just the people who figure in history books, Adams, Jefferson, Thomas Paine, Benjamin Rush, and of course Washington. We tend to see them as sort of figures in a costume pageant. It's often the way they're portrayed. And we tend to see them as much older than they were because we're seeing them in the portraits of Gilbert Stuart and others when they were truly the founding fathers, when they were president or chief justice of the Supreme Court, and their hair, if it hadn't turned white, was powdered white, and we see the awkward teeth and the, and the elder statesmen. At the time of the Revolution, they were all young. It was a young man's, young woman's cause. George Washington took command of the Continental Army in the summer of 1775 at the age of 43. He was the oldest of them. Adams was 40. Jefferson was all of 33 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Benjamin Rush, who was the leader of the anti-slavery movement at the time, who introduced the elective system into higher education in this country, who was the first to urge the humane treatment of mentally ill patients in mental hospitals. Benjamin Rush was 30 years old when he signed the Declaration of Independence. And furthermore, none of them had had any prior experience in revolutions. They weren't 
experienced revolutionaries who'd flown in to take part in this biggest of all events. They were winging it. They were improvising. George Washington had never commanded an army in battle before in his life when he took command. Now, he'd served with some distinction in the French and Indian War in the British Army, continental, continental uh, troops who were fighting with the British Army. He wasn't a British regular British officer. But he'd never commanded an army in battle before, and he'd never commanded a siege, which is what he took command of at Boston, the siege of Boston, where the, where the rebel troops, the rabble in arms, as the British called them, had the British penned in inside Boston. And he wasn't chosen by his fellow members of the Continental Congress because he was a great military person. He was chosen because they knew him. They knew the kind of man he was. They knew his character, his integrity. And George Washington is the first of our political, pres political generals. Very important point about Washington. And we've been very lucky in our political generals. And by political generals, I don't mean to suggest in any way that that's a derogatory or dismissive term. Political in the sense that they understand how the system works, that they, as commander-in-chief, are not the boss. They report to Congress. There was no president then. And no matter how difficult it was, how frustrating it was, how maddening it could be for him to get Congress to do what so obviously needed to be done, to sustain his part in the fight, he never, ever lost patience with them. He always played by the rule. Now, Washington was not as were Adams and Jefferson and Franklin and Hamilton. He was not a learned man. He was not an intellectual. Nor was he a powerful speaker like his fellow Virginian, Patrick Henry. What Washington was, above all, was a leader. He was a man people would follow. And as events would prove, he was a man whom some, a few, would follow through hell. Don't get the idea that all of the Continental Army, all of those who marched off to serve under Washington, were heroes. They deserted the army by the hundreds, by the thousands as time went on. When their enlistments came up, they would up and go home just as readily as can be, having felt that, that they had served sufficiently and they needed to be back home to help support their families, who in many cases were suffering tremendously uh, for lack of income or even food. But those who stayed with him stayed with him because they would not abandon this good man, as some of them said. Now, what Washington had, it seems to me, is phenomenal courage, physical courage and moral courage. He had high intelligence. If he was not an intellectual or educated, he was very intelligent and a quick learner, and a quick learner from his mistakes. He made dreadful mistakes, and particularly in the year 1776, almost inexcusable, inexplicable mistakes, but he always learned from them. And he never forgot what the fight was about. He never forgot what the cause was about, the glorious cause of America, as they called it. And he would not give up. 
he would not quit. When he took command of the Continental Army at uh, Cambridge in the summer of 1775, he had probably 14,000 troops. And from those troops and from the officers that were there at the time when he arrived, he selected out two men as the best he had. And here again was an aspect of his leadership that must not be overlooked or underestimated. He was a great judge of other people's ability and capacity to stay where the, where the fighting was the toughest and to never give up. He picked out Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox. Nathaniel Green was a Quaker. He was a Quaker with a limp from ch childhood injury. He knew no more of the military than what he had read in books. That's all he knew. And he'd been made a major general. And he was 33 years old. Henry Knox was 25. He was a Boston bookseller, a big, fat, garrulous, keenly intelligent man who, like Green, had only about the equivalent of a fifth-grade education, but who had never stopped reading. And he, too, knew only of the military what he'd read in books. But please keep in mind that this was occurring in the 18th century. Their present, and their present in the 18th century was an era in which it was widely understood, the age of enlightenment, that if you want to know something, a good way to learn is to read books. Very radical idea to many in this day and age. Now those two men were were quintessential New Englanders. Green was from Rhode Island, and uh, Knox had grown up in Boston. Washington had discovered very soon after arriving in New England that he ardently disliked New Englanders. So he also overcame his bias against New Englanders to single out these two men. And to skip way far ahead, let me point out that Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox were to be the only general officers in the Revolutionary War who stayed until the very end. They, those two, and Washington, three men who never quit among the officers, the general officers. So Washington's prediction could not have been greater. Nathaniel Green turned out to be the best general we had, and I'm including Washington in that lineup. The Quaker with a limp, the man who knew nothing but what he'd read in books, who learned, like Washington, from his mistakes. And let's not forget what a war it was. Eight and a half years, the longest war in our history except for Vietnam. 25,000 Americans were killed. That doesn't sound like very much to those of us who have been bludgeoned, who have been numbed by the horrible statistics of war in the 20th or 21st centuries. 25,000, somebody said. That doesn't sound very bad. 25,000 was 1% of the population of 2,500,000. It was a lot. If we were to fight a revolutionary war today, we, if we were to fight for our independence today, and the war was to be equally costly, that means that we would have more than 3 million of us killed. I think that brings it home pretty clearly. It was a long, bloody, costly war. And as it wore on in the year 1776, we suffered one defeat after another. At Brooklyn, a huge battle over an area of six miles, 40,000 soldiers involved. And we were soundly defeated 
We were made to look foolish. We were outsmarted, outflanked, outgeneraled, outnumbered. We really were, we were pathetic. Some of us were immensely heroic, but we never had a chance. But then in a miraculous escape from Brooklyn Heights, the night of October 29th, we got back across the East River and were saved. It was the Dunkirk of the Revolution. And if the wind had been in the other direction that night, or the two or three nights preceding it, I don't think that we have, would have had a chance. I don't think, I don't think there's much question the war would have been over then because Washington and 19,000 American troops would have been captured. Exactly the way we and the troops under Rochambeau captured the British forces under Cornwallis at Yorktown at the end, near the end of the war. And it was the British, it was the French fleet that arrived which made the escape of Cornwallis impossible. If the British had been able to bring their warships up into the East River between Brooklyn and Manhattan, at any point up until that night, they would have had us right in the trap, in the bag. But because the wind was out of the northeast, it was a howling northeast storm, they weren't able to do that. Washington ordered that all, the pos all possible boats be rounded up, exactly like ha happened in England at the time of Dunkirk. Every possible small craft be rounded up and made ready to bring the army back to New York. They went down. It was to be done at night. Now, an organized retreat for an experienced army is the most difficult maneuver of all when faced by a superior force. But for this amateur pickup team, this 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 rude, uh, crude, ununiformed, undisciplined, untrained American army of farm boys, some of whom had only uh, been given a musket and told to march off a, a few weeks before. But for that kind of an army to successfully make a retreat across water at night, right in the face of the enemy, without the enemy knowing, was virtually an impossibility. And they did it. When they went down to the shores of the East River, right where the Brooklyn Bridge now stands, to start the crossing. This same wind that was keeping the British from bringing their fleet up was keeping it, the river too rough for them to make the crossing, so it looked as though they weren't going to make, be able to pull it off. And then all of a sudden, almost like the parting of the waves, the wind stopped. And the, this little makeshift armada started going back and forth, back and forth, all night long, ferrying men, horses, cannon, everything, back across the river to New York. And they succeeded. 19,000 men and all their equipment, horses, cannon, and the rest, were taken across the river that night successfully without the loss of a single man and without the British ever knowing it. I think I wanted to write about that scene, that event, the reality of what happened there as much as anything else about my book 1776. Because it seems to me it shows so much that we need to understand. First of all, it was said right away and very understandably that the hand of God had intervened in behalf of the American cause or, the, or providence or chance or whatever any of the many people who are trying to interpret what happened chose to use as their wording. But it couldn't have happened just because of chance or the hand of God. It had also to have 
the people of skill and experience and courage, nerve, daring to try it. That escape was organized and led by a man named John Glover from Marblehead, Massachusetts, and his Marblehead mariners, fishermen, sailors, who knew how to handle small boats. And during that crossing, which is a treacherous place to cross, even in the best of conditions, the East River isn't a river at all, it's a tidal strait, those boats were loaded down so much that the gunnels were only a few inches above the water. No running lights, no motors, no cell phones to talk back and forth. Um, and it worked. They did it. So it was character and circumstance in combination that succeeded. The army was totally demoralized. They'd been defeated. They were soaking wet. They were cold. They were hungry. They lost, a, again, pathetically at Kipps Bay. They lost again in the great battle for Fort Washington when over 3,000 of our troops and all their equipment were taken captured, taken captive. And by the time Washington started his big retreat, his long retreat across New Jersey, they were down to only a few thousand men. Men had been sick, probably a, probably a quarter of the army were too sick to fight. Victims of smallpox, typhoid, typhus, and worst of all, camp fever or epidemic dysentery. Men deserted, men defected, went over to the enemy. Um, they went over to the enemy by the hundreds. Or they just disappeared, they just went away, never heard from again. By the time Washington was about halfway across New Jersey, he had all of 3,000 men. That's all. Now we are, we are taught, we, we honor, we, we celebrate those great men who wrote and voted for the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia. But none of what they said, none of what they committed themselves to, their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, none of those noble words about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all men are created equal, none of that would have been worth any more than the paper it was written on had it not been for those who were fighting to make it happen. And we must remember them too. And those who seem nameless, Jabez Fitch and Joseph Hodgkins and little John Greenwood, who was all of 16 years old, and Israel Trask, who was 10 years old, little boys marching with the troops as fifers or drummers or messenger boys, not just Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox and George Washington or John Glover. And they were in rags. They were in worse than rags. They had no winter clothing. The stories of our troops leaving bloody footprints in the snow because they were in bare feet, those stories are true. That's not mythology. Washington was trying to get his army to the Delaware River, to get across the Delaware River, to put the river between the army and the oncoming British army, all of whom were very well equipped, were very well fed, very well trained, the best troops in the world, led by an extremely able officer, Cornwallis. And on they were coming, and they were going to end the war. But Washington felt if he could just get across the river, 
get them over on the other side, the Pennsylvania shore on the western side, destroy any boats that the British might use to bring the army chasing across the river after them, that they'd have time to collect themselves and maybe get some extra support. Again, they went across at night. Again, it was John Glover and his men who made it happen. They lit huge bonfires on the Pennsylvania side of the river to light the river, to light the crossing. The next morning, a unit from Pennsylvania rode in, militiamen, among whom was a young officer named Charles Wilson Peel, the famous painter. And he walked among these ragged troops of Washington's who'd made the escape across New Jersey. And he wrote about it in his diary. And he said he'd never seen such miserable human beings in all his life. Starving, exhausted, filthy. And one man in particular he thought was just the most wretched shape of a human being he'd ever laid eyes on. And he described how the man's hair was all matted and down over his shoulders and he was naked except for a, a what they called a blanket coat his feet wrapped in rags, his face all covered with sores from sickness. And he was studying him. And then all of a sudden he realized that the man was his own brother. Well, I think we should all sense, feel that they were our brothers, those brave 3,000 and to remember what they went through, just as Abigail Adams stressed in her letter, and that they didn't quit. Well, Washington took stock, just as the British Army was taking stock of what the situation was, and most every officer and all the politicians, many of whom had fled from Philadelphia by this time, because it seemed clear the British were heading for Philadelphia, and there was nothing to stop them. And most everybody concluded that the war was over and we had lost. It, it was the only rational conclusion one could come to. There wasn't a chance. So Washington did what you sometimes have to do when everything's lost and all hope's gone. He attacked. They went up the river Christmas night, nine miles up to McConkie's Ferry. They crossed the Delaware, famously portrayed in the great painting of Washington crossing the Delaware, which, as everybody knows, is inaccurate in many ways. But that doesn't matter. It does portray with drama and force what was one of the most important turning points, not just in the history of the war, but the history of our country and, consequently, of the world. He had the nerve, the courage, the faith in the cause to carry the war once more to the enemy. And they marched nine miles back down the river on the eastern side and struck at Trenton the next morning. The worst part of the whole night was not the crossing, as bad as it was. The worst part was the march through the night to the attack. Again, a northeaster was blowing, and again, that northeaster was beneficial to our cause because it muffled the noise of all the crossing and the noise of the march south but it also increased by geometric proportions the misery of the troops. It was very cold. What the wind chill factor must have been can only be imagined. So cold that two men froze to death on the march because they had no clothing, no winter clothing. They were in rags. 
They struck at Princeton, at uh, Trenton the next morning. It was a fierce house-to-house savage battle, small in scale, but very, very severe. And it was all over in about 45 minutes, and we won. For the first time, we defeated the enemy at their game, war. Now, it wasn't a great battle like Brooklyn or in later years at Gettysburg or Fredericksburg. This was a small engagement, but its consequences were enormous, beyond reckoning, because of the psychological effect. It transformed the attitude of the army and of much of the country toward the war, and in that it was a pivotal turning point. It struck again at Princeton a few days later and won there too, again by surprise, again marching through the night, again taking the most daring possible route and risking all and winning. But I want to read you in conclusion a scene that took place on the last day of the year of 1776, December 31st. All the enlistments for the entire army were up. Every soldier, because of the system at the time, was free to go home as of the first day of January 1777. Washington called the troops out into formation. Now, this wasn't all of them, but a large part of them. Washington believed that a leader ought to look like a leader. Washington was a great lover of the theater, and he knew that part of being a leader was to play the part and to look the part. His uniforms were always splendid, immaculate, perfect. He rode a spectacular horse. He never showed any sign of of discouragement or self-pity in public, but there was plenty of it privately, as we know from his private correspondence. So he appeared in front of these ragged troops on his horse, and he urged them to re-enlist. And he said if they would sign up for another six months, he'd give them a bonus of $10. Now, that doesn't sound like very much, does it? But it, it was an enormous amount then, because that's about what they were paying, being paid for a month, if and when they could get paid, their regular pay. And these were men who were desperate for pay of any kind. Their families were starving. Well, the drums rolled, and he told them, those who would stay on, to step forward. And the drums kept rolling, and nobody moved. Nobody stepped forward. Washington turned and rode away from them. And then he stopped. And he turned back, and he rode up to them again. And this is what we know he said. My brave fellows, you have done all I asked you to do. We know, too, I should add, that he spoke to them as one man wrote in a most affectionate matter, ma- manner, affectionate manner. You have done all I have asked you to do and more than could be reasonably expected. But your country is at stake. 
your wives, your homes, and all you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigues and hardships, but we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. Again, the drums rolled, and this time the men began stepping forward. God Almighty, wrote Nathaniel Green, inclined their hearts to listen to the proposal, and they engaged anew. Now, that is an amazing scene, to say the least. And it's real. This isn't some contrivance of a screenwriter. However, I believe that there's something very familiar about what he said to those troops. Let me repeat what he said, the most important part. He said, if you will re consent to stay one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. In other words, he's saying, you are fortunate. You have a chance to serve your country in a way nobody else is going to be able to. And everybody else is going to be jealous of you. And you will count this the most important decision and the most valuable service of your lives. Now, doesn't that have a familiar ring? Isn't it very like the speech of Henry V in the Shakespeare's play, Henry V? We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed that they were not here. Washington loved the theater. Washington loved Shakespeare. I can't but help but feel he was greatly influenced. He was also greatly influenced by the classical ideals as they all were of the Romans and the Greeks. The history they read was not American history. There was no American history. It hadn't been written yet. Their history was history of Greece and Rome. And while Washington and Knox and Green, not being educated men, didn't read Greek and Latin as Adams or Jefferson did, they knew a play called Cato. And they knew about Cincinnatus. And they knew that Cincinnatus had stepped forward to save his country in its hour of peril and then after the war was over, returned to the farm. Washington, the political general, had never forgotten that Congress was boss. When the war was at last over, Washington, in one of the most important events in our entire history, turned back his command to the Congress. A scene portrayed in a magnificent painting that hangs in our national capital in the rotunda, a painting by John Trumbull, who also, of course, did the famous signing of the Declaration of Independence. No conquering general had done that before. When George Washington heard that, that when George III heard that George Washington might do this, King George III said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. So what does it tell us? It tells us that the, orig the original decision of the Continental Congress was the wise one. They knew the man. 
They knew his character, and he lived up to his reputation. I hope very much that those of you who are studying history here will pursue it avidly, with diligence, with attention, not just because it will make you a better citizen, and it will, not just because you will learn a great deal about human nature, which you will, and about cause and effect in life, your own lives as well as the life of the nation, but as a source of strength, a source of example of how to conduct yourself in difficult times. And we live in very difficult times, very uncertain times. But also, too, as a source of pleasure. Read history for pleasure, as you would read a great novel or poetry or go to see a great play. And I hope that when you read about the American Revolution and all that happened, and the reality of those people who were not gods, who were not perfect people. They were imperfect. That's what's so miraculous, that they rose to the occasion as very few generations ever have. And I hope you will never, ever think of them again as just figures in a costume pageant. That's my speech.